This is Tax Chats. Hello, I'm Scott Dyring. And I am Jeff Hoops. And we're here to chat about taxes. Hello again, and welcome to another edition of Tax Chats. I'm Scott Dyring, professor of accounting at Duke University, and I am joined, as always, by the Tax Museum curator and professor of accounting at the University of North Carolina, Jeff Hoops. Hello, Jeff. Hello. Today, we have a very amazing thing that's going to happen. We have a guest, and our guest has been to the Tax Museum, one of very few people who have been there. Jeff, who's our guest? Uh, and I should note, we did not bring her on just to talk about her visit to the tax museums in case you're scared off. But our guest is Jennifer Bluen. All right, Jennifer, say hello. Hi, Jennifer Bluen. I'm a professor of accounting at the University of Pennsylvania. All right, Jennifer, thank you for coming. Jennifer, by the way, um, is has a very good connection with the University of North Carolina. She did her PhD at the University of North Carolina. I think she graduated the year I started, so we like were like ships passing in the night. When did so, you start? Anyway, great to have you with us, Jennifer. It's yeah, good to start. I thought we overlapped here, but maybe it's it's been a long maybe time. Maybe one year, actually. Maybe yeah. a year. I think maybe a year. Yeah. So, uh, and I and you mentioned before we began here that you have not only been to Jeff's tax museum, but you have been to another tax museum, correct? Yes, I have been to the Dutch tax museum um, located in Rotterdam. Uh, Netherlands. And it was fascinating. It goes all the way back to when the Netherlands was created as a group of different states that came together to fight Spanish taxes. So it was pretty cool. So Jeff has a future as the tax museum <laughs> curator. If it fails at the University of North Carolina, he can always move to the Netherlands and see if he can uh, get a new job. We, we, I wouldn't have to move. We would just, it would be a, a, an issue of conquest. We'd just take them over. Take them over. You yes, need to put it on right. your itinerary, definitely. Yeah, exactly. Well, we have Jennifer on because Jennifer is one of the world's leading experts in income shifting, a topic which gets discussed often in policy circles and among academics and um, something that's kind of commonly discussed in the popular press. And Jennifer's done quite a lot of work here. And so Jeff and I thought, you know, we should get Jennifer on to tell us about income shifting. So Jennifer, just for the sake of those who, you know, don't live in the world of taxes all day, every day, like we do, maybe just tell everybody, like, what is income shifting and what's the big deal? Wow. So income shifting, broadly speaking, if you're in, have a business that operates in more than one jurisdiction, you have to figure out how much income is going to be reportable and taxable in each jurisdiction. And so at the end of the day, all else equal, you'd prefer to probably have relatively more income reported in that low tax jurisdiction and relatively less income in the high tax jurisdiction. And so the big problem with studying income shifting is the counterfactual, is how much income would be located in each jurisdiction in the absence of taxes. And so we spend a lot of time, particularly in public economics and as accountants, trying to measure and figure out what this counterfactual would be to benchmark how much income shifting is going on. A lot, I think a lot of people would hear that and they just say, 
Like, why don't they just report how much income they actually had? doesn't seem that hard. You earn the amount of income, just report the income that you had. Well, but this is trying to explain, say, a global operation of an organization. So how much income do you have if you're uh, some sort of, your supply chain is integrated and you make little bits of the final project across multiple jurisdictions? Turns out it's not that easy to exactly calculate how much income or value is created in each jurisdiction. So I always use the, uh, I like to talk about Airbus in class, right? Because this was the big EU game is we all wanted to have our fingers in the pot to make these aircraft. So why? Well, part of the reasons we wanted the employment across jurisdictions, but we also have profit, right? How much profit was ultimately created in the manufacture of this aircraft? And at the end of the day, does all that profit just get located or reported in the jurisdiction that finally sold it to the end customer? Or is it arguable that there was value created as you manufacture this aircraft in the steps? And I think probably is, you know, from an economic perspective, is there's value being added throughout the manufacturing process. So it turns out it's it's really fundamentally a cost accounting problem. How much income do we report every place? Yeah, and as someone who spent many years thinking and teaching about cost accounting, a sort of side gig that I had while I was publishing tax research, it turns out that you might think that's like very simple. Oh, just figure out where the value is added and report the income there. But it's kind of complicated sometimes. And then you said something earlier. It's like you have to decide where to put the income, which sort of makes it sound like you just say, I think I'd rather have the income in this country and not in that country. I'll just choose to put it in the country with the low tax rate or something like that. But it's more complicated than that. Tell us why. Well, it's because there is lots of overhead and other activities besides what I would say just the direct manufacturing of a piece of, you know, like, let's go back to this aircraft, right? So there's financing associated with it. There's compensation for the management team. There's uncertainty about, well, it's Airbus, right? That has value as the brand of Airbus. So, you know, where does that value belong? This is what we call the intangibles. And because of that, it's, you know, it's a tricky problem to decide which jurisdiction, you know, gets how much of the total pie. And that's assuming you're trying to be accurate about it. Yeah. What if you don't want to be accurate? Then what happens? Well, I, I would like to step back and say, you know, there's accuracy in terms of what's reasonable. Then there's, there's always a range of accuracy. Yeah. And then there's evasive. Right. So I, I would think if you would talk to most multinational corporations, they're going to say because these are hard things to value. There's a range of what would be appropriate. And so I think when we talk about, well, what's how much value is created with the partially completed fuselage of an aircraft, right? Well, you could say, well, the, this arm's length principle is something that's very important when we talk about income shifting. It says you could go look at a comparable transaction. Well, there's no comparable transaction, maybe, maybe Boeing, right? But that's not Airbus of a partially completed fuselage. And so you there's might, not a liquid market for partially liquid, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So the idea of the arm's length principle is you need some kind of liquid market where you can go compare a transaction. And what you're saying is certain types of things like airplane fuselages just don't have it, 
right? It's hard to get that, right? So that's what an arm's length is. What would a willing buyer pay a willing seller? And so you need these comparables. And it turns out those are hard to get, particularly in things unique like the partially completed fuselage when you have intangible assets, right? Trademarks, brands, licensing of technology. And so what we come down to is, well, economically, what? how do we put a value on that? And, and, and there's really smart people that work in the firms, economists that try to put values on these, but it almost always comes down to a range. So is it a range? And do you pick the midpoint? Do you pick the high point? Do you pick the low point? And I think this comes back to what Scott was pushing me on, you know, early on in the call is I don't choose to put more income you know, necessarily in the high tax, excuse me, uh, in the low tax jurisdiction, but all else equal, if I have a range, then perhaps I'm going to put, you know, the high point of the range, if it's in a low tax jurisdiction for income relative to the low point, you know, if I were in a, if I were in a higher tax jurisdiction. And again, the question is what we want to know is what would you report if there were no taxes anywhere? And that's the fundamental that we're always trying to chase. Um, I think one thing that, one thing we like to talk about, I mean, it's it's kind of exactly that, is how, do we know how much income shifting there is? I mean, a lot of of what we do with our corporate tax system now, we're trying to motivate your form store international system based on how much non-compliance there is or how much gaming of the system is or whatever you want to talk about. I mean, it's this choice that you're talking about. What do we know about how much there actually is? Well, that, is kind of the $64,000 question, right? And that arguably is gonna guide a lot of policy decisions is how much are we truly losing? Now estimates in the United States, well, I know why I'm here today and uh, with some very, very influential individuals have been arguing that we're losing about 40% of our tax base. So a little hundred plus billion dollars of the US corporate tax base is being lost to income shifting I've recently seen some numbers coming from researchers um, from Europe that are saying we're losing a trillion dollars a year. And, you know, that's not revenue. I believe believe that's the income that is being shifted out. And those are really large numbers. That's that's a big amount. And so I always like to, to tell tax directors when I talk to them, I think you guys are good, but I don't think you're that good. Right. And so when push comes to shove, let's step back and say at the margin, you know, if this much activity is happening, then, you know, the, the tax authorities should be like reaping in dollars all the time in, in, in cases on transfer pricing. And and they're not, right? I mean, that's assuming that the, that $100 billion is illegal. Is illegal? It is illegal, exactly. Or, or that the IRS, I mean, it might have been illegal had the IRS not agreed to it tacitly through a APA. Uh, or, or so hold on just a second. You guys just covered a bunch of things that nobody has any clue. Nobody okay. even knows what an APA is. Sure they do. Everybody does, no. Scott. And if you don't, you're out of I here. I know what it is, but I'm guessing my father who listens to this podcast does not know what an APA is. Well, let's then back up and say, okay, yes. So $100 billion is definitely, if it's being lost at the U.S. tax base, 40% of the amount of taxes is being collected from corporations is a big number. So first question is, is I think that Jeff brought up, is that all illegal? Probably not, right? Because of we measurement issues we talked about er- earlier. Intangibles are hard to measure. We have a range. So if it's something reasonable within a range, when we estimate the value being 
reported in different jurisdictions, the IRS isn't going to collect that incremental revenue. Uh, but the ultimately the the problem I think we come back to is well, what was the appropriate amount that should be reported back in the United States to begin with? And I think it's useful to say what that number is if we had it, and we just don't have it. But I think what has gone on is we've put out these very large numbers that's hard to take out of the public's mind. And one thing I have done some work on is say, I, I don't believe the numbers that are being generated from some of these studies are appropriate. And part of the issue comes down is how do we measure income, right? What is an appropriate amount of income just from looking at each separate com company's activity within their jurisdiction? And so let's press pause um, about setting policy on these really, really large numbers and say, well, will we do the same thing if I told you maybe we're only losing 4% of the corporate tax base to aggressive revenue? Maybe you would say, yes, we do the same stuff. Maybe not, right? And I think that's Yeah, I, so that's a really important point, right? Because sometimes magnitudes matter. And if you think about any law, any enforcement activity, it's almost impossible. Like this is take, I'm going to take Walmart, for example. Walmart recently put up security gates at the local Walmart that I go to, to like prevent like people from shoplifting. Okay. Your, your neighborhood's going down. My neighborhood's gone downhill. Mine and, still doesn't have it. We're good. And, and the question is, can Walmart prevent hundred percent of shoplifting? And the answer is like almost certainly not. And if they put up gates at my Walmart, it's going to, deter some people from shopping and like the costs of trying to prevent it might be kind of higher than the gains that they would get from stopping it. And, and so it seems sort of unreasonable from a policymaker's point of view to say, we're going to stop income shifting a hundred percent. Like that's not going to happen. But if we're losing a hundred billion, the effort that the government might put in could be very different than if we're losing 10 billion. Right. I think that's what you're talking about. That's exactly the point is what we're starting or how we're setting the narrative in the United States is under the presumption that we're losing 40%, we're losing the hundred billion. And I don't think that's the case. Um, so why, why specifically not? Well, for a couple of reasons. One is these studies that generate these very large numbers use what we call aggregate data. So they study, if we were to look at what US multinationals have an activity in Ireland, we have one number and they, don't look at what we would call, I would call the idiosyncratic behavior, the firm by firm behavior, which says, yeah, there's some, there's some entities that probably do a lot more income shifting because they have a lot more intangibles. So you think Apple or Google or, you know, the, the tech sector and pharma, but those are not that many firms. If we sort of step back and say, let's look at everybody that's in our economy. And so when we aggregate these data, right, we find some really extreme behaviors, A. B, it turns out that, well, turns out that aggregate data isn't, isn't what we thought, what, what the economists using it, and, and I can safely say economists using it, is what they think it is, right? So if we step back and, and correct these aggregate data sources for some accounting issues, they're going to find estimates that are right in line with what we call the, the micro data, which is when we estimate the responsiveness of each company as being a unit of, of observation. Okay, so let's let's back up and break some of that down because there's a lot of information there. The first thing you said is not all companies behave in the same way. And you said something like, 
tech companies, pharma companies, et cetera, they might be shifting more income than other companies. Just briefly tell us why they're like the big targets. And, and primarily because they have large intangibles. And remember, we st- began talking about when we comes down to these cost accounting problems and putting a value, an arm's length value on what should be going on in different jurisdictions. When you have an intangible, which by definition is unique, right? It's an intangible asset. It's really hard to value. So there's, so no, the- there's no liquid market for the Google search algorithm. Exactly. There's no comparable, right? That you could go to. So and the so, range could be bigger, which gives them sort of a bigger scope for shifting income. More flexibility. Now, to Jeff's point, it's not necessarily that what they've done isn't right, but they do have greater opportunity. Okay. Second thing, um, you were talking about the economists maybe use the data wrong. And you sort of said economists, we're all three on this call accountants, and accountants think about the world in a different way. And we tend to care about the way the data actually is generated firm by firm. And the economists often, especially the macroeconomists, tend to take, after the data has been generated firm by firm, some government agency adds it all up and gives one number per country or something like that. But as accountants, we like to dig into the little details and we say, how exactly did that big number get calculated? And you've done some work that suggests that the way the numbers were calculated and then aggregated was not very clearly explained, I guess, by the the government agency, the Bureau of Economic Analysis. And this may have led to some inferences that might have been overstated. Like, explain to us how that works. Right. And so the easiest way is to step back and think of how or what a multinational organization represents. So a multinational organization U.S. multinational organization represents what we would consider a U.S. parent, right? There is a U.S. company that's who registers on NICE and trades, and they in turn own subsidiaries or affiliates where that sort of legal protections, right, of their activities in different jurisdictions. And so these data that economists use um, are aggregated by the Bureau of Economic Analysis, which is a division of the Department of Commerce, right, all back to Treasury, is used for a very specific purpose, and it's not to study income shifting or transfer pricing. Because of what they want their data for, they have to make some accounting conventions on how they ask firms to report. So back to our example, when we look at, say, IBM, you see one set of financial statements, and that includes the income that IBM has generated globally. It's their revenue, it's their profits, it's the interest they paid and the capital expenditures that they made. But that doesn't give you any information or very limited information about how much of that income IBM earned in the United States versus everywhere else, all right? And in fact, that's the only statistics you can get from their financial statements is a little bit of information about revenue, But when we talk about taxation, we want to look at profits, right? Bottom line income. We get two numbers. We get the United States and we get everywhere else. Well, that doesn't help the United States figure out how much foreign direct investment its multinationals are doing in Canada versus Ireland versus South Africa. And so what these data do that the US government aggregates is they ask our IBM to say, okay, IBM, how much activity do you have in the United States? Report that on one set of financial statements. How much income do you have in Ireland? Report that on a separate set of financial statements. 
And how much activity in Canada do you have? Let's take that for, for example. And on its face, if you're studying profit shifting, that seems great. And that's what the economist is. Take those three numbers and run with it. Well, important question to ask is how is IBM organized? So does the US parent separately own its affiliate in Ireland and then in Canada? Well, nope, it turns out that how IBM is organized, hypothetically, is it has its US parent, which owns the stock in a company in Ireland, which then owns the stock in the company in Canada. So this is like, are Ireland and Canada siblings or are they grandchildren and children? Exactly, how are they related, right? And so if you want to blow these three entities apart and look at how they're performing individually, what you have to stop back, step back and recognize is that Ireland, probably single biggest asset that it has is its operations in Canada. It owns the stock of the subsidiary in Canada. And so for financial reporting, if we say, well, let's look at how Ireland performed, we would include the activity of whatever Ireland manufactures or makes or operates, but we'd also report its income from its operations in Canada because that tells us about the economic performance of that entity. So when we have those data that we report to the, to the US government, well, it turns out Ireland not only has its own income on its books and records, it also has the Canadian activity on its books and records. And that is the piece of information as accountants that we'd recognize the limit of these data that apparently was overlooked by um, economists for 30 years. And, and that particular example turns out to be really important because the way you laid it out, if Ireland is a tax haven and many people believe it is, right. now what happens is it appears as though there's lots of income in Ireland because Ireland is capturing both the Irish activity and the Canadian activity. And it doesn't look like there's as much activity in Canada because Canada only captures Canadian activity. There you go. And so if you're looking at the responsiveness of, let's look at the foreign income of IBM or any multinational, if you have havens be these kind of foreign parents where they own, they have children, right? They have affiliates in other jurisdictions they will always appear to have way too much income or much more income relative to their, what we'll call downstream entities. And so if you're studying profit shifting, it turns out that you will estimate that there's an awful lot of income in havens that probably shouldn't be there given headcount or property plant and equipment or something else that you might wanna use as, you know, as capital on which profits can be generated. So there's where your $100 billion revenue loss is coming from, is numbers that turn out to, frankly, we use the term double count earnings. But they could be double counted, triple counted, quadruple counted, because if I have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren, the more greats get in there, the more times <laughs> I've counted the income, correct? Feel free to look at the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Homeland Investigation org structures that were made public for us. And you can see that these things are often five or six layers deep. And so, exactly. So it could be counted five times, the income. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, so then it seems like when you said that there's estimates and then they include 100 billion, I mean, if this is a flaw in the data that they were using, it doesn't seem like there's estimates that include 100 billion. It seems like there's estimates that used to include 100 billion before we knew those estimates were wrong. I mean, is it widely 
acknowledge that they were wrong or is there some wiggle room here or how should we still think of 100 billion as an est- as a as a valid estimate well i clearly do not think that the 100 billion dollars is a is a appropriate estimate to rely well, you're, on. you're the guest so you get to decide what's valid or not on this particular show but i will say because all we do and 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 and, and to address this measurement issue, it turns out that the government very kindly provides us data so that we can take out that Canadian activity from Ireland and redo all our, our transfer pricing or income shifting estimates. It's subtraction, folks. That's all you need to do. But if you subtract out these amounts from the downstream affiliates from these Haven jurisdictions, you don't see that there's much left in the Haven jurisdictions um, as compared to what there were before. And so we've been received a lot of pushback that we can't possibly be right uh, because the revenue loss drops from $100 billion a year to about $10 billion a year once you make this correction. And, and so if the accounting correction that you're making is accurate, then the without changing anything else about the methodology, just simply correcting the data underlying the estimates, the estimate is one-tenth of the previously kind of best estimate that was coming from these data. Absolutely, that's true. Which is, again, just to reiterate, which is quite important if we're trying to set a law that like what we should do about this problem of profit shifting, because if we're, we're willing to do a lot crazier things, if the problem's a $100 billion problem, then a $10 billion problem. Exactly. And so the, the concern is twofold. One is I think the point that was brought up about the cost benefit trade-off, right? Which is very, very large. But the second is I think about perceptions. So they do this crazy change in law and they don't collect any revenue. That's just going to, you know, again, anger a lot of the constituencies, which isn't going to make life any easier for setting what would be appropriate international tax policy. So to go back to my amazing Walmart example, if Walmart thought that it was losing the, the Hillsboro, North Carolina Walmart, thought that it was losing, you know, $100,000 a day in theft. And so it put up these security gates. And in reality, it was only losing $10,000 a day in theft. And they put up the security gates. They might find they put up these security gates and really they still lose the same amount of through theft because they really weren't losing that much to begin with in the first place. Exactly. And that's kind of what you're talking about here. We could impose pretty significant uh, regula- regulations on these firms to try to stop income shifting. But if there isn't a lot of income shifting or as much as we thought happening in the first place, it might be a really big pain in the neck, but it might not really actually generate much more revenue. Right. And so I would be curious is if we knew that the U.S. estimate was 10, 20 billion. Let's even get crazy and say it's 20 billion a year profit shifting. Would we be still having the OECD's proposals about a effectively a global minimum tax? Would we still be arguing about taxing book income? Would we be trying to reallocate revenue in a manner that's a little bit crazy um, to you know equally share 10 billion dollars as opposed to 100 billion dollars? And and I think it's. I think it's an important point, and I've not heard anybody back down, at least from the OECD, about how much they think they're going to earn a raise in revenue from these new proposals. So that, yeah, so that was going to be my next question, actually. So um, when you wrote this paper joint with Leslie Robinson, another UNC PhD, 
uh, graduate, I, I should add, <clears throat> not from Duke. Um, <laughs> we still talk yeah. to Scott, though, you know. I mean, Jeff does call me Benedict Arnold on occasion because my shade of blue has uh, darkened so much. But that's neither here nor there. Let's talk about uh, what you were going to say, Jeff. Sorry. So you you have this paper that shows there's this this counting problem. You can go for 100 billion to 10 billion. So has that that you just don't think that's changed the conversation about income shifting at all? I mean, how have have policymakers acknowledged this problem? Do they keep on running with the 100 billion dollar number? What's happened? You can you can look at the white papers that come out of Treasury, and they still have the hundred billion dollars estimate in there. Of course, one of the problems is that one of the current policymakers at Treasury wrote the hundred billion dollar paper. That's the problem, right? So we, I think we're getting buy-in though is more. And what I should also caution is is there's lots of work going on in income shifting, but every data source. Every data source that is used to study income shifting faces this accounting problem that we address or that I'm mentioning about who owns who and how much income of what you own ends up in your books and records. The trouble is, is that there's a lot of variation in practice as to how different countries report or require the reporting of this income. So one of the solutions we had was, remember, country-by-country reporting. I don't know if you've talked about this. It's been on. We've talked a little bit about it on previous episodes. It's got the same problem somehow, and they're trying to solve this issue. But I I challenge you, if you add up all of the country-by-country reporting across one multinational operations, it just adds up every country in which it has activity. (laughs) Those numbers on that form are going to be greater than what they share with the capital markets and their financial statements. And so that should give us pause if we're going to use that to study profit shifting. And remember the trillion dollars that I've mentioned globally that's being lost, or excuse me, that's not revenue, that's profit that's being shifted every year, shifted out of their appropriate jurisdictions. That trillion dollar estimate's coming from country by country reporting data. So- Which could have the exact same double, triple, quadruple, quintuple accounting problem. Yeah. So it's very interesting because I think the policy implications are just sort of hard to, it's hard to overstate. I do think it's interesting. I mean, let's imagine that when we first estimated this, everybody paid attention to the data, they got it all right. They did the the subtraction that you would suggest they should do. And we estimated 10 billion to begin with. Do you actually think the policy discussion would be any different? Or do you think that it's just, it's, I mean, to some extent, some tax policy is just ideologically driven we want to do things not because actual dollars and cents, but because it makes us feel good inside and because it gets votes to talk about it. And do you think we would be talking about it different had we started with 10 billion? I think we would have actually, I think because we would have been focusing on other, I mean, pick whatever flavor of other bad behavior we'd be chasing down. But if you look at 10 billion at over, I, I can't remember what aggregate profits are of, of us companies. I mean, it's not that big. Not that big. But, but there's other tax. I mean, for example, I mean, here's here's the perfect counterexample. Are you ready for this counterexample? This is going to convince you, Jennifer. Inversions. How much money did we lose to inversions? Like not nothing. And but we wrote crazy laws. And we right? wrote crazy laws that had these consequences. And every politician on the right and the left talked about them. But it wasn't ever about the revenue. It was just about we just needed something to talk about. And that, but that was anti-American, right? You were expatriating, you were leaving U.S. soil, right? I mean, that was a very 
different dialogue than, hey, company. It was just a, it was just a political. It was like a, a convenient political narrative where it's profit shifting and feel the same way. And to the average American, ten billion, a hundred billion, a quintillion, it's all the same. It's just a lot of money, more than I can count. If you take that ten billion and divide over the what ten thousand tax returns that that have international operations on it, you know. I think you need to talk about that the research and experimentation credit, right? There are other items I think that perhaps there's which, we, which is more than ten billion a year. Yeah. Exactly. Well, the other thing I think sometimes gets lost in these conversations: a hundred billion sounds like a lot, ten billion sounds like a lot, also, but it's obviously one tenth the size. But sometimes we forget that if you look at the United States total revenue that it collects from all taxes, only about ten percent of it comes from corporations. And of that 10%, only a small fraction of that would come from foreign operations of U.S. multinational companies. And only a small fraction of that is purported to be lost to income shifting, even if you take the highest amounts. And if you go to the smaller amounts that, Jennifer, you're coming up with, and, and actually I have some research using a different source of data that comes up with estimates quite similar to yours, um, we're talking like less than probably 1% of total revenue collected by the government. So, so Jeff, at some level, I think you're probably right. Like much of this is convenient political talking points more than it is, oh, we're losing so much revenue that it's destroying our government. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I think in a lot of cases, it's not the case is like there's stuff we want to buy and we just don't got the money to buy it. So we got to get the money. And it's just, we need something to talk about to make people angry. Let's talk yeah. about this. Yeah, totally agree. Well, it's but this is back to the notion of corporate welfare and do they get too much to begin with? But again, there I, I think the cost issue, what is going to be laid down on multinational organizations reporting is going to be prohibitively expensive and make a ridiculous amount of I mean, just hey, it's the full employment act for tax directors of multinational organizations, right? They'll be busy for a really long time. With all that. these uh, accounting programs out there for all you accounting professors, there's uh, some job security in the in 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 the uh, in the pillar one and pillar two from the OECD. Uh, well, Jennifer, we've we've uh, we're quickly running out of time, but uh, thank you so much for joining us and giving us your insights. There's just obviously we could have talked for another hour, and maybe someday we'll have the privilege of getting you back on the show to chat a little bit more. Uh, Jeff, any final questions? Nothing. As always, I'm questionless. He's questionless. As Je Jennifer, who knows Jeff, knows that Jeff is never never questionless. He's always got something on his mind. He's always got something on his mind. Well, thank you again. Uh, I'm Scott Diring. I'm joined by Jeff Hoops, my co-host. And today we are lucky to have been joined by Jennifer Blue and professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, this has been another edition of Tax Chats. We hope you'll join us next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.